Well, we're talking about precepts. And I'm just going to take a little bit of time at the beginning for those who possibly weren't here last week or even for those of you who are here to review a little bit about precepts. And then we'll talk about the second of the precepts that are traditionally taught in the Buddhist tradition, in the Theravadan tradition. And that one has two aspects to it. Uh, It's not stealing in the most raw and direct way of putting it, or in the more expansive, positive way of putting it, it is cultivating generosity, cultivating a life of giving and generosity. So we'll talk about the second precept. And then when we come toward the end, I'm going to say some more about how it comes into our practice and how practice is guided and supported by having precepts, any precepts, including a second. (coughs) We'll finish with a little bit of time at the end, and I always enjoy very much having some responses or thoughts, and so I'll try to structure that time so it's not too invasive. I know from sitting in Dharma talks before, um, many times I have the feeling that I just kind of like to hold the talk and just kind of hold my response to it. And when it comes to the sharing time or questions or something like that, it feels almost a little bit too much left brain or too much analytical or something like that. So try to structure it in a way that's harmonious tonight. And then we'll finish by doing a little sharing of the merit and we'll adjourn by nine o'clock. There are traditionally three paths in a person's practice in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. And Inez covered those last week. She mentioned sila, which is the structure, the the boundaries, the um, call it the framework for living. Uh, Sometimes it's called morality, sometimes ethics. Uh, It is the way of putting a container on our lives so that, first of all, we don't get things coming at us that are overwhelming or we minimize being overwhelmed. And also, we don't give out things that can be overwhelming or harmful or disruptive to other people. So sila is that part of practice that gives us a protection, a shelter, a structure, traditional immorality, uh, although that sounds moralizing. And moralizing isn't what we generally think of as Buddhist practice. The Buddha being very well known for having said, try this, experiment. If it releases you, if it leads you to a life of less suffering and freedom, then incorporate it. If not, leave it. So we're not talking about the right way or the true way in the sense that often in our society we hear about rightness and trueness, uh, being inviolate, absolute, um, rigid. More with 
sila, that aspect of practice and the precepts, we're talking about something that helps us, that supports us, that maybe helps filter what we give and what we receive. And if it helps our movement toward freedom, if it supports the freedom and liberation of other people, then it's useful. The other two elements of practice traditionally are samadhi, the practice of meditation, the development of mindfulness through sitting, formal sitting, walking, uh, through opening ourselves to a place um, of peace, of clarity, so that our mind becomes our friend and is supportive. So samadhi and then panya. And panya is uh, traditionally associated with wisdom. Sort of the end, you can think of it as the end result of leading a life that's structured and ethical and moral. And having mindfulness, having the support of clear awareness. And from those two results wisdom or panya in the Pali language. And as Inez mentioned last week, all three of these aspects of practice are self-reinforcing and mutually supportive and interacting. So it's not necessary that we start with one and move to another. It's more that as our practice matures and deepens and grows, all three become stronger. And our wisdom grows, our meditation grows, and our ability to interact in the world with a clarity. So tonight we're going to talk about the more, I guess you could say, structural part of the three aspects of practice. The structure known as the precepts. Precepts have been part of Buddha's practice forever. And uh, just anywhere you go, no matter what flavor of Buddhism you encounter, the precepts will likely be part of it. They're expressed in more uh, expansive language, uh, sometimes in more positive language. I personally, I, when I first heard about the precepts, I thought, um, I, you know, that they were negative. And I thought, you know, this not harming uh, was a negative approach. I was sort of drawn to the being supportive of all life that Inez talked about last week. In Jack Cornfield's way of seeing it, um, building uh, a life that it's harmonious with all aspects of life. And to be honest, I've changed. <clears throat> I've gotten to really appreciate why traditionally the practice regards the precepts in a negative way. I think there's something 
uh, advantageous to a negative statement. First of all, uh, it's clearer than the positive statement. The positive statement, positive aspect may be a, uh, more generous and supportive and friendly and warm and fuzzy. But to say not harming makes it really clear. It just kind of puts it right in front where it's uh, unavoidable. So tonight I'm going to talk about not stealing. Stealing is something that everybody has a propensity to do. And I remember when I was a little kid and I would go into a candy store and I didn't have any money and my mom wasn't looking and I just thought, you know, there it is. It's just, who's going to miss one little piece of candy and it would taste so good. And I actually did a couple of times and I, I sort of felt this momentum building. And as I think back about it now, uh, I must have been caught in the act and had somebody slap my hand or something or other. Because I have this, ooh, don't steal, you know, don't steal. It's the, it's the admonition. I can... Imagine the deliciousness of that little morsel, especially because it sort of uh, comes out of the blue and there's no responsibility tied to it. I think about when I ran a business and how that urge was also there, you know. Uh, You get into a sales situation. One of my major clients for about 15 years was Intel Corporation. And Intel uh, was very good at doing the proposal process. And so they would invite my company to do a proposal. And then there'd be other proposals all lined up there. And and when I'd submit the proposal, I'd I'd have this urge of, if I could just kind of look at what the other person had said. You know, if I just had a sense of what their bottom line was or what their three major points were. Now, wouldn't that be great to just have that little edge? And <clears throat> never worked out that I had that. And uh, in looking back on it, I think about what, what torture that was to not be freely giving my proposal from the heart of the company. Here's what we can do. Here's what we need in return. Um, but to be locked into this trying to maneuver and structure and be strategic and find the edge. I, uh, for better or for worse, got an MBA as I was launching my business. And uh, one of the things about MBA, uh, people joke about it, that MBA stands for myself before anyone and, you know, there, there's a little bit of truth to that. That, that That's uh, in this capitalist economy that we live in, there's, um, there's kind of a validation for the urge to steal. You know, as long as you steal within certain boundaries. 
So uh, another vote for the simple statement, not stealing. Inez mentioned last week the aspect of our lives, which is hardwired. There's research on the brain that uh, has shown, call it scientifically, what we pretty much know anyway, that, that we all have the urge to cling. We all have the urge to have things come out differently than they are. To, to kind of see what we'd rather have, that piece of candy, that glimpse of a proposal, uh, that little edge that would just kind of set us up just right. So this hardwired quality is what I believe the traditional teachers of Vipassana practice had in mind when they put the emphasis on precepts. The idea being that we are not all naturally structured in a way that is easily harmonious and easily integrated. If our world were like it, uh, you know, it's portrayed where people are uniformly generous and open hearted, uh, what a world it would be. But we're not wired that way. We're sort of, uh, for better or for worse, the evolutionary process that's led to the way our minds work has created something that's kind of self-serving, that is, um, uh, call it pushy or graspy, wanting something that isn't, wanting more than what is. So I remember that in when I think about the heart of what is involved in stealing. A nicer way to put the stealing, not stealing issue is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Inez read last week or presented Thich Nhat Hanh's way of verbalizing the precepts. And number two, he says, being satisfied with what I have. This is the precept of not stealing. Having an acceptance, having an accepting heart, having the confidence to know that what is, is fine. What is, can be worked with, can be dealt with, doesn't need to be adjusted, doesn't need to be manipulated. Uh, strategic formations aren't necessary. <clears throat> Inez mentioned the controversial part of not harming last week. Things like uh, the difficulty with war. War seems like it's something that's built into our lives. Um, the difficulty of living a life in a country that is at war. Um, 
the challenge of being supportive of those who are warring, it's a, a great difficulty. How do we have a life that's non-harming and uh, we're not continually taking a stand against war? So Inez was very good not to answer all of these difficult questions last week, but to pose them for our consideration. She talked about the problem of eating meat and the traditional practice of vegetarianism, which isn't uniform in Buddhism. Lots of Buddhists eat meat and do so uh, feeling like they're staying with the precept of not harming. There's an aspect of that which is also stealing, and we're learning more and more about that with the whole awareness of how we impact our environment through eating meat. How every pound of meat that we eat contributes to clearing forest and um, enslaving traditional indigenous people and making a beef industry that isn't really the most efficient way to use the earth and to provide food for ourselves. So it's not only a harming aspect, but also a, a stealing aspect to the eating of meat. <clears throat> and then you get into really difficult things like uh, how can you not harm uh, when we want to have our plants grow in our garden. And so uh, the growth of one plant means that others have to be either killed or cultivated away or prevented in some way. So just remind us all of what I believe was the message behind these dilemmas last week that Inez presented. And that is that it's uh, there's no clear prohibition, there's no right or true way, but there are some guidelines. The guidelines are, will I be harmed? Will others be harmed? And what is my deepest or true or honest intention. And so to resolve these dilemmas, we have the support of noticing what harms me, what harms others, and what is the intention that I bring. So Inez gave the example of the Dalai Lama, who is a half-time vegetarian. He eats vegetarian one day and eats meat the next day, and when he's thinking and, you know, using the meat products, he's holding a, a uh, inner presence of appreciation, of uh, wishing well for both the plants and the animals. So we have this... Um, 
good part of the practice, which gives us supports and boundaries, but it's not all that clear. For instance, I was skiing um, at Copper Mountain in Colorado about three years ago with my sister, and a young man came down the hill out of control. I didn't see him, and he smashed into me, and I ended up about 25 feet down the hill, head over heels, skis knocked off, really sore. And <clears throat> since I didn't see it, I was in this sort of shock state, and I uh, had a, an urge to kind of be very protective. I sort of turtled up into a fetal position, thinking, you know, some way I just had to prevent whatever was going to come at me next or whatever happened. And I sort of slowly moved out of that and got sight of what was going on. And by the time I was able to get up on my feet and sort of shake myself off and look around, kid was gone. And uh, I saw him disappearing down the hill. And I heard his father say, go fast. He's getting up. And yeah. And it was it was a it was a really uh, poignant moment. Not that I needed the help. I was able to get going again. And, you know, I mean, it would have been nice to have somebody stop and check and make sure I was OK. But, uh, you know, this the speed, first of all, and being out of control, that's kind of a stealing. But then to, you know, coach somebody to uh, to prevent a positive interaction or some kind of interaction, you know, to urge that that doesn't happen. So it was kind of a multi-level theft going on there. And it took me quite a while. Uh, since it was a physical experience, I could feel it in my body for a long time. And it took quite a while for me to really shake it off. And um, as Inez mentioned last week, realize that not everybody is going to be the way I'd like them to be. And to get to a place where I could feel okay about the experience and regard the out-of-control skiing and the difficult or improper, I think, coaching from the dad as you know, the, the best that these, these two could do for whatever reason they had hearts that were closed or fearful. Uh, there was a blockage to their openness, to their you know, ability to be with what was. And to see that that really is suffering. And to wish them well, to both of them, to, to wish that they... Uh, you know, don't have further experiences like that. When, when you have an experience like that, just like me with that little piece of candy, it builds a momentum. And to unwind a life of stealing decisions can be a very, very hard thing to do. So, the process of 
having something stolen, and then forgiving. I would encourage us to think of the precepts as um, sort of two edges of a sword. First of all, don't steal. And second of all, forgive those who, for whatever reason of closed heart or damage to themselves or fear, do steal. So, to me, the precepts have both parts. I'm going to tell a story about myself that I'm not particularly proud of, but I think it's illustrative. And, you know, one of the advantages of giving a Dharma talk is that you can learn and (laughs) hopefully listen to what's being said and listen to the message of what's going on. Uh, So the story I'm going to tell is uh, going to the YMCA, where I've been a member for about four months, and working out, it's been a great experience. I got frightened by a a visit to a doctor. I have some ankles that uh, I've run on for about 30 years, and so I have tendonitis and sore ankles. Uh, Last summer, I went for some hikes in beautiful mountains with my wife, and she really was kicking my butt. I couldn't keep up with her. And uh, at the end of the day, I was kind of thinking, boy, I don't know if tomorrow I'm going to get out and do this. And so I went to the doctor, and he recommended surgery. And I thought, wow, I'd do anything to avoid surgery. And so I joined the YMCA and got this rehab program going. And I, it's making good progress. But something I've noticed is that it's a, a, a time of samadhi for me where I'm in a space that I don't know anybody. I, every once in a while I see somebody I know, but I don't know anybody. And there's kind of a structure to the routine So I don't have to think too much about what's going on. So I've got this mental awareness that I can use, I can do something with. And so I've started listening to Dharma talks. That's been great. And then I just, uh, rather than listening to Dharma talks, I, I just started kind of being quiet and assuming a meditative posture, even though at the time I happened to be on the elliptical trainer or, you know, doing some weights or something like that. So it's been a a good process. But what I've noticed is that I still looks at people. There are all kinds of things going on in the gym. And I just I just notice this tendency I have to check out who's there, you know, and who's got, you know, who's got the nice waist and who's got the shapely thighs and, you know, and uh, it's involuntary. It's not that I want to do it, but boy, do I do it. And uh, the meditative process is for me to hold some space so that I can kind of notice the tendency when it comes up. And in the spirit of what Inez talked about last week, that the intention uh, 
that's present before the act of doing the looking. What is the intention? Can I hold an intention of just appreciation? Or am I going to steal a look and kind of, you know, indulge it? Kind of like that piece of candy when I was a little kid, you know, just kind of kind of suck on it. Just kind of, you know, really get the juice out of it. And so I've noticed <clears throat> this tendency and I've noticed that I can hold the spaciousness and I can not be clingy. And, uh, you know, if I happen to glance and I happen to notice something and my mind says, Ooh, I can kind of let it all go. Or I can go, hmm, I should look at that again. Mm, look at that. Wow, isn't that something? And so for me, that's, that's a very strong practice of holding intention, holding spaciousness. So one of the things that <clears throat> strikes me about the second precept not stealing. Just like Inez shared last week about languaging. The way we language is so important in our building the capability of being mindful, no matter what is going on, no matter what's coming from the outside or no matter what our brain, our mind, is generating on the inside. So... If we're clear, the language can be supportive. So not stealing makes a lot of sense to me. I think about how stealing has been called a lot of different things. In my grade school and high school history class, we talked about manifest destiny. And, you know, it was thievery. What the story was, was taking something that was not given. Appropriating it, just having it. Manifest destiny was the way of kind of making it sound okay or something like that. I did some travel in the Southwest and learned about the Paiutes. Paiutes lived in southwestern Utah, northern Arizona. And traditionally, they had little concept of self-ownership. Anything that one person had was shareable by somebody else. If they needed it, they kind of passed it around. They didn't have all that much, and they just kind of were comfortable with that. Well, of course, when the settlers came from the east, they didn't want their stuff borrowed and used and taken and stolen from their point of view. So I thought about how in the Paiute mind, it wasn't stealing. It was just simply utilizing something that was there, not particularly wanting to prevent somebody else from using it, but if it was there, using it while it was there. Of course, the end result of that was that a lot of Paiutes got taken out um, 
with uh, the idea that it was ridding the country of these predators. So it was a good example for me of how our way of languaging, our way of explaining the story that we tell um, has a lot to do with these precepts, particularly tonight talking about the not stealing. Another one that uh, is more frequently used nowadays uh, in the news is capitalist hegemony. Capitalist hegemony. Uh, The idea being that uh, capitalist uh, way of approaching things is kind of the, the natural, normal way, and anything else doesn't deserve to have uh, sway, doesn't deserve to have power. So the capitalist hege- hegemony uh, is an explanation for how land was taken, how borders were adjusted, how people were given certain resources and prevented from having other resources, and so on. So I encourage us to look at the second precept as just being very simple, very straightforward, not stealing, not taking that which was not given. I've had the opportunity recently to work with several support groups, one here at IMC of people that are supporters for those that are struggling with life-threatening illness. Also in my work with CARA, I work with people that are recovering from having a suicide in the family. And it's been so interesting for me to see how those support groups generate an atmosphere, um, call it a protection. And to me, it's kind of like the precepts work When the suicide survivors support group gets together, there's a safety, there's a knowing, there's an acceptance. It's kind of like a lot of agreements are in place and you don't have to start at zero and explain things all. But whatever is said is more easily understood and accepted. So to me, that's the action of a precept to create a safety, uh, a zone where we're protected and other people are protected. Where no matter what's happening, uh, our best interest is held, other people's best interest is held, freedom and liberation is moved toward The traditional teachings on how to lead an ethical, moral, precept-driven life have the Buddha saying the following. What should be done by one skillful in good so as to gain the state of peace? Let him be able and upright and straight, easy to speak to gentle and not proud, contented too, supported easily, with few tasks 
and living very lightly, his faculties serene, prudent, and modest, unswayed by the emotions of the marketplace. And let him never do the slightest thing that other wise men might hold blamable. So the last sentence there, another negative statement. Let him never do the slightest thing that other wise men might hold blamable. It's a high standard. And yet it brings protection and safety and leads to liberation. So that's the second precept, a way of helping us navigate, find our way, deal with a world that's highly competitive, where there really are people that want to eat our lunch and where we have a tendency to eat others' lunch. So how can we be safe and how can others be safe in such a world? Next week, we're going to hear from Art Jolly about the third precept, which is about not indulging in sexual misbehavior. Or on the flip side, having loving relationships which include integrity and intimacy. So Art will be here with us next week. And then following, uh, Daniel Bowling will be here to talk to us about uh, what's called right speech or not lying. <clears throat> the precept, don't lie. A uh, positive way of expressing it, uh, speaking in a way that leads to freedom and liberation for others and yourself. And then finally, the fifth week in the series will be Rebecca Dixon. And Rebecca is going to talk to us about this fascinating topic of not using intoxicants or on the flip side, uh, keeping our life such that our minds are more open, uh, more clear, that awakening is our life process. So I thank you for listening to me about the second precept. I want to close with the same reading that Inez used last week because I think it's a good summary of the precepts and it has um, a good, clear expression about them all. It's from Jack Cornfield, A Path with Heart. He says, the basic precepts are not passive. They can act actively express a compassionate heart in our life. Not killing can grow into a reverence for life a protective caring for all sentient beings who share life with us. Not stealing can become the basis for a wise ecology, honoring the limited resources of the earth and actively seeking ways to live and work that share our blessings worldwide. From this spirit can come a life of natural 
and healing simplicity. Out of not lying, the third precept, we can develop our voice to speak for compassion, understanding, and justice. Out of non-harming sexuality, our most intimate relations can also become expressions of love, joy, and tenderness. And finally, out of not abusing intoxicants, the fifth precept, or becoming heedless, we can develop a spirit that seeks to live in the most awake and conscious manner in all circumstances. At first, precepts are a practice. Then they become a necessity. And they finally become a joy. When our heart is awakened, they spontaneously illuminate our way in the world. So the second precept, not stealing, is really about coming awake in our life, noticing where our grasping has a heat and energy, noticing where we want to steal that look, grab that advantage, take that edge, and moving into a life of generosity where we give spontaneously, where we're there in support, not only of the freedom of others, but of the ability of others to come awake in their lives, even though they may not know of precepts, may not follow precepts. So there's a freedom in our living in a way that we wish others could live and being generous enough to support all in achieving that freedom and that kind of awareness. So generosity is the peace that leads to the liberation. The not stealing keeps us safe, but for full awareness, for full awakeness, for our practice to flower in our life, to be harmonious and clear, we need the generosity. So I'll end now. And I'd just like us to sit for about a minute, after which I'll ring the bell. And I'd like us to hold the thought of Generosity given, though not returned. Just hold that thought. Generosity given, though not returned. And then after I ring the bell, I'd like to just have a sense of what that brings up for you. A memory, a story, whatever. So we'll just sit quietly for a minute and then I'll ring the bell. So generosity given, though not returned, not necessarily returned. What does that bring up for you? What memories, what thoughts, what concerns, what issues? Yes, and um, 
let's use names, if you don't mind, just so we can get to know each other. My name is Joel. <clears throat> and a dilemma that I've uh, run up against infrequently is um, being in a restaurant or a food service place and having been brought up to clean up after myself, uh, will clear the table and take my dishes to the counter or to, uh, to if it's paper dishes, take them to the uh, trash and clean up after myself. And have sometimes been with people who will reprimand me for that, for um, taking away a job that somebody is being paid for. And um, I still clean up and do it, but uh, it, does, it does cause somewhat of a dilemma in that situation. Am I stealing from that person? That's interesting how, you know, it's just, you would think that cleaning up after yourself would universally be a good thing to do. Universally appreciated, but uh, that's a good example of how our lives just aren't that easy. They're not that straightforward, and we're always looking for uh, a wisdom to apply. So, in that case, what what would you say about your intention? What what was what's underlying your intention? My underlying intention is to uh, finish what I've started and to uh, clean up uh, what I mess I have made and uh, to actually hopefully lessen the other person's uh, burden of having to clean up after me. Sounds like freedom to me. Yeah. If I had a restaurant, I'd love having you at my restaurant. <laughs> I'd say, uh, you know, do it until you get pushed back on and then see what's, <laughs> where, what's the pushback from. Interesting, though, it illustrates how nothing is a universal. These precepts, even though they sound like locked in stone, are not commandments. They're not the same spirit of the Ten Commandments, or they're not the same rigid structure. And the Buddha was right, I think. We always have to look at our intention. What's, are we wanting freedom for ourselves and others? If so, but if not, it helps us sort out these complexities. Maybe one more. <clears throat> Pass it over. Thanks. Hi, I'm Victor. Um, the last thing you mentioned uh, regarding, um, I forget how you phrased it, um, uh, giving to um, other individuals without expectation of return. That, that's basically what you get to practice with if you have children. Um, they're really not there for you. <laughs> so you're really much, you know, you're there for them. And um, 
I think a lot of complication arises when those roles are, when you confuse those roles. So that's one example I can think of. It's a good example. Yeah, so generosity given, not necessarily returned. And uh, can we keep our hearts open so that we see these children as works in progress, as, you know, their future, which will be great and, and wonderful, the present may be sticky and nasty and uncomfortable. Parents have the ability to do that. And if you're not a parent, it's a bit of a stretch. Actually, you can practice that with uh, if you have a significant other. Not to the same extent, but um, people also get in trouble and confused when there's an expectation that's either unsaid or unmet or um, unilateral. So there's there's that. But your your previous uh, on your talk of stealing just brings up so many things, either personally or societally. And I guess the question I have in from a Buddhist point of view is, what would uh, what would one do, let's say, with your example of the um, skiing and um, these two um, basically acting um, not very skillfully? Um, those are sociopaths in the making. <laughs> and um, so in society, we have those. One can argue uh, the leader of this country is one. So what does one do? <laughs> that is a dilemma. <clears throat> you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, and I'd love to hear other responses to this, is before anything to make sure that our hearts stay open and to realize that not everybody's hearts are open. And we live in a tough world and we live in a, um, you know, unkind world in some ways. Well, let me ask you, is it the role of individuals in society, let's in this case, let's say your example in a mountain, to prevent those individuals from possibly harming others? Not to be punitive towards them, but just to say, you know, you could hurt somebody. Yeah, I, you know, using that specific example, I would say if I physically were able, and I, I wasn't at the time, I had to kind of really collect myself, but I, if I were physically able, I would challenge myself to catch up with them and to say, excuse me, can I talk to you about that experience we just had uh, and share my concerns? Um, yeah, I, I don't think that we're asked to be passive. As Jack says, the basic precepts are not passive. Uh, we're asked to act in a way that liberates ourselves and others. And I think being proactive in places where we might be able to open others' hearts is a good thing to do, but we need to do it from an open heart space ourselves. Otherwise, it gets too preaching to who, who was it said uh, everybody loved me when I was a Buddha but when I was a Buddhist uh, 
I had a lot of pushback. And so we're not about being Buddhists, but we are about living a life of being fully awakened and spreading that. Well, thanks for those two dilemmas. Those were <laughs> those were good. And thank you for sitting with me this evening and coming on the coldest night of the year, possibly, and sharing the opportunity to kind of wrap our lives around the second precept. So I'd like us to just sit in silence once again. And I'll just say a little bit about sharing the merit of this process. And then I'll ring the bell and we'll be on our way. May all beings be safe. both from inner and outer harm. May all beings be safe from greed, both expressed and experienced. May all beings find the liberating quality of generosity, both given and received. May all beings find in their hearts an acceptance and an openness so that the intention of liberation of opening, of affording all the support of an awakened life, may that be available to all in all corners of the world, north, south, east, and west, in our fast-paced world, in indigenous worlds, in the past, in the present, and the future. May we always find <clears throat> that nurturing quality which lets us know that we are fully empowered and fully embraced and supported. And that others can benefit from that from us. May all beings experience a liberated life and may the work and the awareness that we've done here this evening and the qualities that we've generated and embraced, may these qualities move out into the world and make our life full and clear and resonate with others in our sangha, in our community, in our world, 
leading to a life of clarity and freedom for all. I would be stealing if I kept you here any longer. So go to your lives. <laughs> be embraced, be accepted, enjoy. And stay warm tonight. Cover up those orange trees. Get the lemons. Pick the lemons. Jade trees, that's right. Cover up the jade. Yeah, cover up the jade. <laughs>